There you go. Four punch, five punch, six punch combination. Body shot, body shot. Bang, 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 bang. Telling him not to counter punch. Welcome back, fight fans. This is episode 40 of the Fight City podcast. I am your host, Alden Kodash, and I'm joined by the editor-in-chief of thefightcity.com. We have Michael Carbert here joining us from Montreal, Canada. How you doing, Michael? I'm hanging in there, uh, self-isolating like everyone else, or, well, like most of us. Uh, uh, but I shouldn't complain. There are people... Uh, in very dire straits these days out there. My heart goes out to all the people in New York City and uh, in various places where people are suffering from, from this calamity. Yeah. Uh, uh, but so, yes, I, I, I can't complain. I'm, I'm doing okay. And how about you, Alden? Doing okay as well. I'm guessing... Uh... We're both some of the fortunate to still have a job in this dire situation. But in the United States, one out of seven people do not have jobs at the moment. Record high unemployment. So much so that President Donald Trump has created an initiative to reopen the country, so to speak. And as a part of that, he has a sports committee full of American sporting bigwigs trying to get sports back on its feet. Now, clearly, we all on the Fight City understand that sports and boxing is not the priority. But, well, everything has to start back at some point. But unfortunately for boxing, it seems like we didn't get our invitation to this big sports committee. Although guys like Dana White of the UFC and even Vince McMahon of the WWE are on the advisory council. Uh, so is this one of those situations where boxing's fragmented lack of unified federal oversight comes to hurt it in the sense that we are left out of this initiative? Well, I, I kind of think if, if some, if, if you're left out of this initiative, that might be a good thing because <laughs> last time I checked viruses don't pay much attention to the calendar. Um, yeah. So this whole idea that by a certain date, a certain point in time, uh, we're going to be able to resume, you know, our normal activities, it, it makes no sense to me. Um, so, I mean, this is an opportunity for me to say as a Canadian that, I mean, I have a number of friends uh, on the other side of the border, yourself, Alden, other people uh, who I work with who are Americans, and, and my heart goes out to all of them because uh, I'm trying to be diplomatic, but your president doesn't seem to be playing with a full deck. And, um, and the, there's a lack of leadership. There, I don't see how anybody can question that. There's a lack of leadership. There's a lack of clear thinking about how to deal with this catastrophe that we're all facing. And um, so I'm not sure that it's necessarily to boxing's shame that we're not on this ridiculous initiative 
to somehow be able to get things going again. I mean, it 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 only makes sense that boxing wouldn't be involved because, of course, there is no boxing is a sport without any structure, really, without a governing a clear governing body, a clear yeah. system of, of governance, um, and uh, so I mean. It's no surprise. Now, if you went back to Don King era, where Don King and Donald Trump were very close friends, I, I wouldn't doubt for a second that Don King would be on that advisory panel. But, of course, King is well past his prime in terms of his influence on the fight game. <laughs> well, yeah, that I mean, could Bob Arum have been uh, involved? But, but Bob Arum is on the record as basically calling Donald Trump, you know, an idiot. Yeah. And 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 he has no use for him whatsoever. So Aram isn't going to get the call. Um, who who else is there? I mean, yes, King has faded away. I mean, uh, who who? It's, I mean, it's very Al, it's Al very Heyman, difficult. To... Al Heyman is not going to come out of the shadows. Uh, I don't <laughs> think and, and and do a photo op at the White House. Um, so I mean, we don't really have. That kind of um, high-profile, larger-than-life uh, person, uh, in terms of the promotional end of things, that could represent the sport in that way. I mean, I don't know. Could Oscar De La Hoya do it? Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm searching for for someone who could fill that void. Um, in the United States, it would have to be Bob Era, most likely. Eddie Hearn is the up-and-coming new kid on the block in terms of his global influence, uh, helping getting DAZN up and running and offering some probably more positive outlook than most people offer in terms of coronavirus. He's taken the opinion that once we do get back up and running, he is optimistic that we will be less inclined to let fights marinate and have bigger fights happen as soon as possible. Of course, in this interview, he was talking about making Joshua versus Fury happen Vice uh, having them face their preliminary opposition in in Wilder and um, and Kubrat Pula paying them enough step aside money, um, but that's a warm fuzzy notion. But everybody's going to be hungry when we open up the floodgates and, and and let boxing back in, or however we decide to do it. I wouldn't so much as call it floodgates. I think it's going to be a very different structure in the beginning, but. We would like to have a sport where we don't have to wait for these big fights to marinate, but I think it might be, in reality, something of a mess getting back on our feet. Well, I don't really want to be a pessimist, but I have a very difficult... I find it difficult to envision um, a positive scenario for boxing. Um, I mean, the big thing that I, I can't get my head around is that these days, the top fighters, and of course, there's not that many of them, but people like Canelo, Tyson Fury, uh, the, the ones at the top of the food chain, they are they are getting very comfortable with kind of calling the shots yep. and holding out for the fights they want and getting the biggest possible paydays. Now, I have no idea how things... Uh, how you know how how the numbers are going to uh, what what the equations are going to be when this when when this is all done, but I mean we're talking about holding fights in empty venues, right? Yeah. Where there would be no live gate, 
right? Studios. Yep. Yes. And and so okay, so there's no live gate, there's no money coming there. So are the fighters going to be taking pay cuts? I mean, I don't know about you, but the idea of a fight taking place in in an empty uh, venue, let alone city, the amount of economic activity it generates in the city, such as a Canelo well, fight, having having tons of people. I mean, it's an event, and this is the kind of money that promoters are going to have to leave on the table if they decide to push through with these kind of megastar attractions in a lesser type way in terms of fighting in in gyms and studios with no crowds right and and i think part of that will it will mean that the fighters will have to take will be have to be prepared to at least entertain the possibility of a pay cut they're going to have to be flexible they're going to have to be um willing to to make some sacrifices in order for the fights to happen am i am i am i nuts to think that i mean so, so I. Well, I think what's more realistic is that they just don't happen as soon as as some of the exactly. mid-tier level fights. Exactly. I, I think we I think we might have to wait a little bit because I mean there's some contracts in place for Canelo, for example, the most lucrative in in boxing history, uh, arguably, with DAZN, in that you know they've already agreed to pay him 365 million dollars. So. I'm not sure if they can afford to shortchange him or are able to shortchange him on a fight while uh, boxing is in hybrid mode. So, well, they, they okay. So his money is locked in, theoretically, right? Yeah. Uh, but you know, what if the revenue isn't there? You know, so so they're guaranteed. He's guaranteed whatever it is, thirty some million for a fight, but. Again, this this idea of a fight taking place in a studio, I, it's just to my mind, it's not going to quite have the same buzz, is it? Are you are they going to be able to like jack up the uh, the price? The the I mean, you of know, a pay per view, yeah, or or for streaming or whichever. I mean, I I, I just I think I think it's a very we're we're talking about uncharted territory here. We're talking about I have to think that there's really um, not much sure footing in terms of how things are going to proceed, and um, and so I can't help thinking that this, as you say, this makes it less likely for that, the biggest fights. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and well, I mean, not just the biggest fights. I mean, if, if you, even if you're not, well. well, even if you're not a big name, even if you're not a, a big name, but you feel like you are, you have earned. A certain status and a certain type of payday. I mean, are you going to be willing to walk into a studio and fight a top contender for less money than you otherwise would have gotten? I don't know. I just, I just have a feeling that it's going to be hard to put deals together. It, it, it may be difficult to put shows together, and it may be difficult to entice the public. Um, everybody I, I, is, everybody is giving a little bit in this in this new situation. I know at ESPN, uh, they've forced their top people to take a 15% cut. And, uh, unfortunately they've got rid of, or they didn't renew the contract of Dan Raphael very recently. So everybody is suffering a little bit from that. The question is whether or not some of these mid, uh, mid tier level fighters that aren't pay-per-view attractions are going to be willing to take less just to get back in the ring because they're hungry and they're trying to make it to the top. 
But I think what's even tougher to imagine is just the little guy, the small guy, the small promoter that doesn't have access to the streaming services and network television, doesn't have those contracts, what they're going to do as far as building younger fighters in local venues that only make their money really on the live gate. I think that's probably the biggest challenge and uh, probably the biggest uh, hiatus that I could imagine at the moment because, you know. Well, I, I think I think they are going to wait. They are naturally going to wait until they actually can put the show on and have people come and see it. And maybe, you know, the, there'll be um, adaptations made in the venue. People won't be sitting as close together. Yep. Um, I don't know. Uh, but but I don't see how it's feasible. I mean, just as an example... Um, Yvonne Michel here in Montreal recently made a statement more or less saying that, you know, um, putting out a message to his fighters or to anybody involved in, in the shows here, be ready, be ready because when we're able to go, we're going to go and we're going to make the shows happen. Mm. But I don't think he's, my sense is that he's not thinking about doing it in an empty venue. Um, you know, it's more hoping that things, you know, this, the virus situation will subside. We will be able to do, uh, public activities again. Um, and, and I don't see how otherwise you, you can do it. Um, we're again, we're, it's, it's, it's an open question as to how everything it's, it, this is this is the the source, isn't it, of so much of the stress with this situation? Is that so much is uncertain, so much yeah. is unknown. We don't know where we're going to where we're going to be at like a month from now, two months so, from now. So, so naturally, someone's going to have to be first. And I think, fortunately for boxing, is that UFC 249, which sounds like it's going to get some support some support from the federal government of the United States on the behalf of Dana White and is associated with Donald Trump. Uh, it's likely that they're going to kick off the new template for big attraction combat sports events. And they've been talking about having events in venues such as massive cruise ships. Uh, other ideas have been floating around as well. Uh, I, I think seriously, Boxing, but, but Alden, seriously, it's a lot of speculation. I mean, well, okay. So, so just imagine this scenario. They put together a big UFC show and they do it on a big cruise ship. And then somebody on the cruise ship tests positive for coronavirus. Yeah. <laughs> and then what? They're all going to be stuck on the ship? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. And what? 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 what wasn't uh, Dana White going to use an island? Yep. Uh, that was another idea. I mean, uh, I don't well, know. Man. Yeah, I can't actually see something like this happen without uh, high-throughput testing and, and everybody being in safe proximity of one another. But uh, You've got to have all the medical equipment on hand. you got to have the medical personnel. And, and, and that's the point that Luda Bella raises is that, you know, based on the medical demand that the fight game requires is one of the reasons he thinks boxing is going to be the last to get back to its feet because he cites... There's two ambulances required per event, and you know that's obviously going to come at a premium in this day and age when we're dealing with much larger priority medical attention from COVID-19 infections. So it's not going to yeah. be easy. 
No, I, 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 I can't help but think that it's going to be a slow and painful and awkward return to anything resembling normalcy. And, and I can't also help but think that, you know, the fighters are going to have, they're going to have to kind of wake up and smell the coffee and deal with a new reality. They're not necessarily going to be as much in the driver's seat as they have been. I mean, if you want to fight, you might have to. You you might have to take. I mean, it's we're not going to be in a situation where there's a lack of available talent. What I foresee is we're going to be in a situation where there's a certain lack of opportunity. And so, if you as a fighter are going to hold out for a five million dollar check for your fight, well, okay, fine. See you later. I've got somebody yeah. else who will who will do it for two million. You know, I mean, I, I think I think uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, shifts happening in in the in terms of the business of the game. And if fighters want to fight, and if they want to be active, and if if they want to maximize their opportunities, they may have to make compromises that that they never foresaw. Well, who better than some of the lighter talent in the world, like Naoya Inoue, who's already used to fighting for much lesser pay than they've uh, than their counterparts in the higher weight divisions. I think some of these kind of guys who are accustomed to fighting all over the globe and uh, ready to make it big but not too greedy at the moment, I think we might see some really good fights with them. I, I wouldn't doubt that we get Naoya Inoue in the ring before the end of the year as, as one of the first fights back uh, because... You know, I think this is a guy that loves to fight for for pride and for legacy, and uh, I think his hunger will drive him to make compromises. But that's just wishful thinking, of course. Well, mu- music to my ears, Alden. I'm I'm totally on the same page with you. Our fighter of the year for 2019, and uh, I mean, he showed us so much in in his last outing. Um, I, I, I'm, a, I'm with you. I, I love the idea that, that he would be somebody who might set an example um, yeah. and show some leadership and step up and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm willing to, to make compromises. I'm willing to just, you know, I want to get back in the ring and make something happen. And uh, I, I, think, I think we need someone like that. We need, we need someone different. Uh, now more than ever, somebody with a different approach than, say, uh, Canelo Alvarez, somebody with a different approach, a different attitude than Floyd Mayweather. We need fighters who will step up and say, hey, you know, I recognize that the clock is ticking and I want to take advantage of, of whatever opportunities I can get. What about uh, Regis Progre, who we featured in a live interview on yes. our show last weekend? I mean, this is a guy that, that fights for pride, that fights for the love of the sport that fights because he's a true student of the game. And um, I, I would have no doubt that his fight with Maurice Hooker could be rescheduled uh, on the short end going into the latter portion of 2020. Um, I mean, that was already a fight that was not scheduled to take place in front of a huge audience. MGM National Harbor has never been uh, the biggest arena in the world. Uh, you know, he was willing to take a risky high-level fight for less pay and, and not a title because uh, he still is hungry to prove he's the best in the world in his division and make it back to that level. So 
you know, I think we really are banking on guys like that. And not only guys like that, guys like that being matched competitively and producing great fireworks at the end of the year to kind of get the ball rolling and, and uh, create more hunger for the sport. Because I don't think it's going to start, uh, I don't think an event of the magnitude of Wilder Fury 2 is going to be the norm right away. I think we might have to build up to that. Um, and we probably won't get that until 2021, a fight of, of that magnitude. You so mean it'll Wilder, be interesting. You mean Wilder Fury 3? Wilder Fury 2 being the big event this year, probably oh, the okay. only mega fight this year. Wilder Fury 3, it's going to be interesting seeing how they work that out for this year because it goes back to what we were talking about. They might be leaving a lot of money on the table. I mean, these guys are not cheap. And a lot of the way the promoters make their money back is off of the promotion of the fight and the fact that it it packs stadiums and it becomes a major mega attraction in in Las Vegas and, and what have you. Yeah. Um, can they make it back purely on pay-per-view revenue? I think that'll be an interesting question. Um, I but I think physically, a couple of the fighters that come to mind in terms of guys that probably could use the layoff, I'm thinking Earl Spence because of his injuries sustained from the car accident that he was in and Gennady Golovkin, who's clearly the clock is ticking and recently was announced that him and Canelo have agreed on terms for the third fight. Don't know when, but Gennady Golovkin uh, had a fight scheduled for this summer. Uh, clock is ticking on him. He's taken a lot of wear and tear. And, uh, you know, I think he would be best inclined to sit it out until he has to go into the ring and against a fight that could probably define his legacy in, the, in being the third fight with Canelo Alvarez. Well, yeah, he's turned 38. I mean, 38 for a middleweight is ancient. I mean, you know, uh, and, and. Well, not Bernard Hopkins. But. Yeah, well, I mean, yes, there are exceptions. And of course, the big one of recent note is. Manny Pacquiao, I mean, who, you know, I don't know. Uh, Golovkin, you know, when I think of Golovkin these days, the person that comes to mind is Marvin Hagler. Yeah. Uh, Because I've noticed that, you know, a lot of uh, smart people are taking a close look at uh, marvelous Marvin Hagler's record on BoxRec and, hey, he didn't really beat that many great fighters, you know, like take away Thomas Hearns and who did he beat? He, he had, that's the point though. He had that ace in the hole with Thomas Hearns well, and Roberto but, Duran, but, but, but more so Hearns. Yeah. But, but the point I want to make Alden is that people forget everyone was terrified of him. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that was the thing. I mean, he, he, he came up, his reputation preceded him. Um, he was, there's no question uh, questioning his 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 ability his talent um, he he was a tremendous fighter and um, and he was the number one middleweight in the world long before he became the champion yeah. but he was avoided and then after he became champion he was avoided even more I mean one one example that comes to mind is uh, Bobby Chez Bobby Chez was being groomed for a big money fight against Hagler. But, you know, they weren't anxious. They weren't anxious to make it happen. They didn't like their chances. So instead, Bobby Chez went in the ring with Mustafa Hamshow and got his butt kicked and mm. kissed a big 
huge payday against Hagler goodbye. This happened with a lot of different fighters because Hagler was that was so highly respected, basically feared. Yeah. And I mean, you just, it's not that long ago. Our memories shouldn't be quite this short. Uh, it was the same with Golovkin. Nobody wanted to fight him. Miguel Cotto didn't want to fight him. Canelo avoided him as long as he could. I mean, and and so this is the this is part of Golovkin's legacy that that's it's unfortunate he he gets shafted here because the the fact of the matter was when he was at his most dangerous when he was still in his prime he couldn't get the big names to come and fight him because they didn't want they were terrified of him and um, and now you know Canelo's done a masterful job of of prolonging as much as possible he. He he kept Golovkin. He shamelessly ducked him. Let's let's not you know let's not let's 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 call a spade a spade. He ducked Golovkin for an extended period of time. Finally, they met. There's no question, I think, in any objective observer's mind that Golovkin should have got the decision. Instead, it was a draw. And uh, and then the second fight, which was fantastic, our fight of the year. Uh, 12 scintillating rounds, one of the best fights of recent years. Yeah. And I would say probably the fairest verdict for that fight would have been a draw. Um, it goes to Canelo, and now Canelo's making Golovkin wait again, even though we know that the one of the primary reasons that zone gave him that massive contract was it was a given. It was a given, wasn't it? There's going to be a trilogy fight with Golovkin. And well, so once again, the reason they signed Golovkin onto DAZN. Yes. Definitely a large reason why they did. Yeah, so so once again, Canelo was making Golovkin wait. He's 38 years old. Ugh, and I feel for him. I mean, I, I I mean I mean, come on, let's face it. Nobody should feel sorry for him. He's had a he's had an absolutely splendid career. He's a yeah. Hall of Famer. Uh, he's made tons of money. Um, you know, you know he's living the life uh but at the same time it's just it's just there's something about it that kind of leaves you with a bitter taste in your mouth the fact that i really do believe that if things had unfolded the way they should have unfolded we'd be able to say that right now we're looking at a latter day great a great you know somebody who we could say stands shoulder to shoulder with uh greats of the past marvin hagler uh, Sugar Ray Robinson, whoever you can compare him to those fighters because well, I think so I good. think the two most apt comparisons uh, that you could do with tr Triple G is as you said Marvin Hagler and Carlos Monzone, two guys that focused on their division and didn't use middleweight as a stepping stone to uh, pick up titles in multiple different weight divisions. Guys that are career middleweights that just stake their claim on their dominance of the division. Uh, Unfortunately for Triple G, he you know, doesn't have the Thomas Hearns on his resume. Doesn't have the Emil Griffith on his resume. Uh, you know, his best victory is a close decision over Danny Jacobs. And in yeah. history, when we look back on that, if he doesn't get a victory over Canelo in their third fight, you know, I, th I think unfortunately it will be very easy to overlook him because not yeah. everybody will have felt the the fear that Triple G posed when he was the king of the division with 23 straight knockouts. Um, yeah. And in person that's, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. 
And if we think back, what should have happened is he, he would have knocked out Sergio Martinez. He would have knocked out Miguel Cotto. And, um, and I, would, I would be willing to bet a little bit of money that if Canelo had fought him back when it made sense for the fight you know, to first happen, uh, he def- well, I, I, th- I have no doubt he would have won. And at that point, yes, n- lacking a big, huge marquee name like Thomas Hearns, still, that record, that would be a tremendous run. That would have been an amazing run. And, um, you know, I just think it's a damn shame that, that things didn't unfold differently. And what are you going to do? He's 38 years old. And in his last fight, which was a terrific fight, and, yes. you know, mind you, and apparently, uh, reportedly, he was suffering. He was sick. He was fighting a virus or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he didn't, he didn't look that great. Um, no, it almost reminded me of Marvin Hagler's fight against John the Beast Mugabe. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why Canelo is uh, ready to face him now is because exactly. he looks that vulnerable. He yeah. was hurt. The first time I've ever seen him hurt in a fight, he was hurt to the body against Derevianchenko. Yeah. Um, perhaps that's something that Canelo could follow up with. Perhaps he's just damaged goods. But let's speculate on whether – on, on, on the possibility that he wins a third fight with Canelo, which I don't think is uh, very likely. I'll go on the record and say that right now. But if he does, where does that place him in history? If he gets a decisive victory over Canelo, you know, a real good feel-good moment for <laughs> for people like you and, and other fans of Triple G and other fans of the sport, uh, does that place him alongside guys like Monzone and, uh, and Marvin Hagler? Uh, or... Um, is he still just kind of a victim of the times? Oh, I think it would. I think it would. It, it would because it would make the hypothetical ca- case that I outlined a few minutes ago impossible to refute. I mean, mm-hmm. if I mean, I, I'm with you. I mean, there's no way that I can see him beating Canelo at this point. Um, so if he were able to do it, yeah, then. Then, then there's, then no one would ever question the fact that had Sergio Martinez faced him, had Miguel Cotto faced him, had Canelo faced him, you know, back when uh, the opportunity was first there, mm-hmm. we all, we all ha- would have to agree. Yes, he would have won all of those fights, and you add that to the incredible run that he already put together, and then a, a win over Canelo when he's 38. Yeah, I, I. I think that's that's a resume for something more than just a Hall of Famer. I think I think you're talking somebody with you know you can compare to any of the greats of the of the middleweight division at least the last few decades for sure. Do you think Golovkin's legacy suffered in the sense that he didn't move up to 168, maybe even 175, and try to try to take on the kind of guys that uh, might not have been avoiding him like? A lot of the top fighters at 160 were at the time. I've never really understood uh, the idea that you can criticize a fighter for choosing to stay in a mm. weight class where they're comfortable. I, I don't, I don't get that. I mean, if if a fighter gets himself into top condition and he's at a certain weight and that's where he wants to compete, I don't. 
I don't I don't get this idea that oh come on man you you should have moved up should marvelous Marvin Hagler have have moved up to light heavyweight I mean <laughs> I mean the super middleweight division for all intents and purposes didn't really exist uh, when he was competing and mm-hmm. I remember there was idle speculation well why doesn't Hagler move up and fight Michael Spinks you know mm-hmm. I mean Hagler was a lifelong middleweight he was totally comfortable at 160 pounds. And of course, we're talking about the weigh-in happening the same day as the fight. Yeah. And he would routinely weigh in for his fights at like you know 157. I mean, he wasn't killing himself uh, to make 160. Um, I, I think a fighter should be entitled to compete at the weight that they feel comfortable at, and I don't see why anyone uh, should criticize that. Yeah, I think it, I think it is a virtue to be able to make a weight for a sixty-plus fight career like Marvin Hagler was able to be in tip-top condition in every single fight. Uh, the problem with Triple G is that because he was dealing with a relatively weak division for much of his reign, um, you know whether or not he would have just had to force himself up a division just to find guys to build his legacy off of is the question, but certainly there's no, there's no issue with him choosing to fight at middleweight throughout his career. In fact, he was chasing the unified title for much of it, a title that, uh, is just hard to unify in the sense that boxing politics have shifted so much in the recent years that triple G has campaigned in. So it's, it's almost like he's already striving. Uh, he's already setting himself up for failure at, in the, uh, search to become a unified world champion, which is, becoming a huge feat nowadays not because of uh just because of the skill it takes to unify all four belts but because of how difficult it is to simultaneously hold all four at the same time (laughs) i mean if you if you're lucky enough to do it it's not going to last very long you can ask alexander Usyk or terence crawford about their experience being the unified champions in their division um the belt, the belts are meaningless. Don't you find all the more and more the belts are meaningless? Yep. But the uh, problem it, with Triple G I'm, is he was determined to unify the belts. He wanted all uh, the belts. Well, I mean, I think you know more than the belts. He wanted to be able to assert himself as the number one middleweight in the world. Yeah. And belts are symbolic of that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, ultimately, you know. I don't think you have to have all the belts to be able to put yourself in a position where you're unquestionably, you know, number one in, in a weight class. But but to go back for a second for to to your question about you know did Golovkin damage his legacy by not moving up to 168? I mean, you know, let's be clear here. That question, which which became a talking point. Uh, for a certain length of time, a couple, you know, a couple years back, I mean, that's just a way of deflecting criticism from the fighters who really deserve the scrutiny. It shouldn't. Be, the onus should not be on Golovkin to move up to 168. Mm-hmm. The onus should be on the available contenders and belt holders and the different fighters who were active at 160. You know, show. You know, growing a spine. And getting in the ring with Golovkin, that's you know Golovkin does it's not Golovkin's fault yeah. that that guys ducked him, you know because they did they ducked him. So 
let's let's put the let's put the criticism where you know it belongs. Um, it wasn't so much a criticism on Golovkin as much as just an opportunity for him to to uh, enhance his legacy by circumventing what was unattainable, with, which was competitive middleweight fights against the best in his division at the time. There were certainly well, at least some roadblocks at the time there. Well, yeah, but but it shouldn't be un- unattainable, right? Yeah. I mean, this is where we, you know, nobody wants to go back to the old days where gangsters ran boxing and and the fighters were just told what to do and poor guys like Henry Armstrong had to fight like 28 times in a year. I mean, nobody yeah. wants to necessarily go back to that. But at the same time, it wouldn't it be nice if we had some kind of structure of governance that made sure that the best fought the best? I mean, the whole idea of having champions in the first place, having uh, a ranking for each division in the first place, is to try and make sure that that happens, and to try and make sure that a, a champion is really the champion, that, that their standing has some integrity. I mean, you know, by all rights, Golovkin should have been able to do what he wanted to do, which was take on the best middleweights in the world and prove himself to be number one. And it's, you know, I mean, how can anyone say otherwise? It's just a damn shame that it didn't work out the way it should have. It was, uh, you know, if he doesn't get the victory over Canelo in their third fight, whenever it does happen, it'll probably go down if it happens. Well, I'll uh, be optimistic and say that I'm hoping, if it's true, which I have no reason to say it isn't true right now, uh, that they have agreed to terms and they will fight each other when things clear up. But I think uh, in the absence of a big victory in the third fight, I I think there's definitely going to be some grief that goes back when we think about Triple G and and what could have been and and how he would have stacked up historically if, if the odds were in his favor in terms of having the big fights and being able to make them. Uh, but we'll just have to see what the future holds for Triple G. Uh, hopefully he gets the fight with Canelo as soon as they can make it. But of course, in this current environment, everything is uh, really up for grabs. So before we wrap this up, we want to go back and touch on 29th anniversary of a great, great, unexpectedly great heavyweight championship fight between Evander Holyfield and big George Foreman that, uh, We'll be at the 29th anniversary this coming Sunday, April 19th. So going into the fight, it's very, very polarized in terms of the camps that were, one, denouncing the fight as just a farce and a spectacle, and the camps that were actually giving Foreman a serious chance. I was actually very surprised to hear guys like Gil Clancy picking George Foreman to win the fight against Evander Holyfield. You know, after a string of fighting nobodies in which the best victory he had in the four years on the comeback trail before Holyfield was against uh, washed up and inactive Jerry Cooney, who he blasted out in two rounds. Uh, What camp were you in going into this? Did you take the George Foreman comeback seriously, having been off for 10 years after his loss to Jimmy Young? Wow, it's uh, I have to say it's it's not easy to cast my mind back all those years. Um, I was a fan of boxing at the time, but I, 
you know, I was in, I think I was in uh, first year of university, something like that. Um, maybe, maybe it was even my last year of high school. I'm not sure. But uh, it, 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 I wasn't, I wasn't taking Foreman seriously. And I think that was a, 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 a widespread notion among boxing fans. Fans of boxing, people who took boxing seriously, didn't really take Foreman's comeback seriously. However, the general public did. So, for example, when George Foreman knocked out Jerry Cooney in two rounds, yeah. um, I think roughly a year before the Holyfield fight. Yeah, it was 1990, right before Tyson um, lost to Douglas. Like that, that, that outcome meant way more to, uh, you know, your, 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 your general mainstream sports fan than it did to boxing fans. Boxing fans n didn't take that fight seriously. They saw it as a joke. And so when Foreman knocked out Cooney, yeah, it kind of got, yo, you know, it's a bit surprising in a way. But on the other hand, it's like, well, come on, it's Jerry Cooney. Like, give me a break. Like, the guy's washed up. Michael so, Spence, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so I think my general attitude at the time was I didn't take Foreman seriously at all. I didn't take the comeback seriously. And I fully expected Hollyfield to win, which he did. However, there's no doubt that, that Foreman's performance against Hollyfield did surprise me. And I'm, I think it surprised pretty much, you know, the vast majority of people. There were some old timers and people who um, had, you know, so, like Gil Clancy trained Foreman, you know. So he worked with him. He, he had some insight that the rest of us didn't have. Six of the past um, seven heavyweight champions in that lineage uh, were predicting a Foreman victory as well. I was very surprised to hear how many former heavyweight champions thought Foreman was going to pull it off against Holyfield. Well, I mean that says something, doesn't it, about about the respect that people had for Holyfield, or sorry, for Foreman's ability and the and lack of respect for Holyfield. In that to some was, degree, yes, yes. And maybe they they had their eye on the fact that Hollyfield was you know a cruiserweight moving up to heavyweight. Yep. Um, but it ultimately uh, what was what was most striking about that particular event was how a huge percentage of people were expecting Foreman uh, to not perform well to 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 to. to for for the fight to basically be a reckoning, you know, um, and then and then secondly, every I think the vast majority of people were not expecting something particularly competitive. So instead, we got I mean, there's no question Hollyfield won with room to spare, but yeah. it was a it was a good fight. It was a good fight with some great action, and and so Foreman exceeded. Uh, the most people's expectations by quite a bit and it made his his return to the ring legitimate it it, it, it redeemed him even though he lost the fight he suddenly uh, had new respect from everybody nobody could well as you may recall at the post-fight press conference it was as if Foreman had won yeah he you won know? the event 
Yeah, yeah, he 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 exactly. He didn't win the fight, but he won the event. He won the night, and uh, and he could carry his head high, and he surprised, you know, most people. But I mean, uh, Michael Katz of the New York Times uh, said that this is a joke. He said this is ridiculous. Um, he'll probably get you know knocked out in two rounds. Ferdy Pacheco was saying that you know he could get killed, he could have a heart attack, that this this fight shouldn't be allowed to even take place. Yeah. So you had you had voices like that counteracting people like Gil Clancy, and uh, you know so so when that's the case, um, you go in there, you fight a good fight, you don't come close to winning, but you definitely show that you belong, and that's what Foreman did. Foreman showed that he belonged. And to be clear, guys like Gil Clancy were thinking Foreman was just going to be too big and too strong for Vander Holyfield, who was the former 190-pound champion. They called it junior heavyweight champion back in the day. Very small heavyweight that didn't get the proper credit for being the heavyweight champion for quite a while. I'd say probably until his trilogy with Riddick Bowe was picked up and underway. I think what was more shocking was that that fight, showed that Foreman was not just the bigger guy and the bigger puncher, and that's why he was in the fight. But here's a guy that's eating cheeseburgers in the press conference that's able to go 12 hard rounds and still be effective in the late rounds after taking some hellacious punishment. You know, this is a guy that was still able to will his way into championship-level condition that he can fight a guy like Holyfield, who's a you know whirling dervish, perpetual motion machine when he wants to be sometimes, and still duke it out with them in the later rounds of the fight, which I think carried its own uh, weight in a lot of respects. I think that was probably one of the least likely outcomes to come out of it. A lot of people thought Foreman was going to tire and get stopped in the late rounds. Yeah, absolutely. The guy who was, who got tired and was hanging on in the last couple of rounds was Hollyfield. Hollyfield was clinching a lot. He was the one who was gassed out at the end. Um, you know, I mean, again, there's no doubt that Hollyfield deserved to win the fight. Um, but, but without, you know, the match itself unfolded in a way that uh, very few people expected, like almost nobody, really. As you pointed out, the ones who were picking Foreman were picking him to win by virtue of size and weight and power. And, um, and in fact, Hollyfield was able to handle uh, Foreman's power uh, without difficulty. He stood up to it. Um, uh, so, so it, the fight really confounded expectations. Um, and it was in the end, it was a credit to both men. It was a credit to both fighters. It was a damn good fight. You know, not a necessarily a fight of the year candidate, but it was still it was a good fight. Yeah. And and it made Foreman's comeback legitimate. It and it, it made baby boomers feel great you know <laughs> like here's was, here's, here's this was, guy he's one of us and he came back and and he competed with a guy who's like i don't know what 15 20 years younger and he held his own amazing yeah foreman was on a mission to show how senior citizens uh <laughs> shouldn't be afraid of uh of uh of their of their youthful um, more aggressive counterparts, and he had all these great talking points, and he was trying to be inspirational. But, uh, you know, I think he made a lot of believers in that night, and he disproved a lot of non-believers. And he went on uh, to 
beat Alex Stewart, to beat Pierre Coetzer, fall short against Ty Morrison, and then pull off history when he knocked out Michael Moore to become the oldest heavyweight champion in history. It's an uh, amazing story. An amazing yeah. story. So, George Foreman versus Evander Holyfield. If you haven't seen the fight before, I recommend checking it out on YouTube. It's the 29th anniversary of their 91 fight this coming Sunday. Uh, I've checked it out recently. I uh, hope everybody else does as well. But that's about it for our agenda on episode 40 of the Fight City podcast. It's a pleasure working with you again, Michael. Great to talk with you again, Alden. Thanks very much. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in.